hello and a very warm welcome to the first episode of this podcast. It doesn't have a name yet. It might have a name before we go live. Um, this podcast has sort of been in the works for a while um, as a way for us to kind of s- spend more time hanging out, talking about sports or pop culture or wh- whatever this we decide to talk about. So who are we? Uh, my name is Michael Trurillo. I am a... Um, sports broadcaster, audio engineer, and sports reporter here in Central Florida, and this is... And everybody, my name is Mel Stack. I'm a graduate of Seabreeze High School, the University of Texas at Austin, and, <clears throat> excuse me, this upcoming fall, I'll be attending law school. The specific location, I'm not sure where yet, but it's definitely been an exhilarating ride thus far. Yeah, and, and you want to study like sports contract law and entertainment industry and that kind of thing. So most definitely, I'm definitely interested in different aspects of the law, whether it's um, transactional law, intellect protection of intellectual property. Uh, I I'd like to think that I remain open-minded to a bunch of different um, realms of the law, given I don't I haven't been in law school and I. I'm still trying to learn the the basics and the foundations, so I'm looking forward to that. So this podcast will be mostly about sports because that's the thing we most have in common. It's the most common topic we we get together and talk about. We've both played sports for a while. Uh, We've both coached sports, and I've obviously broadcasted sports a bit. Uh, So... We're very we're very knowledgeable in that respect, but we may range far afield on, on topics if if something comes up. But uh, the whole point and structure of this is just we are right here sitting at a table with our microphones and just having a chat like we would on a normal afternoon. Yeah. So wherever the com- we have a loose script of topics that we kind of want to talk about, but other than that. We're, we're going to go wherever the conversation takes us, and we hope you will come along for the ride. So let's uh, go ahead and get started. And the first thing that you wanted to talk about is something that happened just recently. Um, you got to come with me and broadcast some high school basketball. We did the uh, part of the Florida State High School Girls Basketball State Tournament together, specifically for a District 9. And we got to do a couple of games uh, a few weeks ago, and... You just wanted to sort of talk about that experience because for me, this is this is my job. I do this all the time. I call 100 games a year. This was your first experience being behind a microphone in any sort of capacity. So <laughs> yeah, I, I want your opinion on, on what, what that experience was like and, and how you reflect on it. Most definitely. Well, Michael, I mean, first and foremost, I'm super appreciative to you for having me on the broadcast just a few weeks ago. Um, regarding my past experience with... I guess you could say being on air in different capacities. I've been featured on the radio a few times, but I had never been given the opportunity to actually co-broadcast a game. And I found it to be a very interesting experience for a variety of reasons. I mean, firstly, as somebody who's an aspiring attorney, I think it's really important to be able to eloquently and also effectively and concisely um, explain your thoughts um, in a courtroom. And I thought maybe by getting a little bit more hands-on broadcasting experience that would also help me um, down the line as well with my public speaking skills in general. And it was just, I was definitely a little nervous when it started just because, I mean, in basketball, as you know, Michael, I mean, things can just, they can happen so quickly and there's definitely an art form and 
especially in terms of um, whether you use um, different tonality or knowing when to interject at certain times. I did my best to try not to interrupt you too many times there, but it <laughs> yeah, was a great experience. And it was great having you along. It, for most of the broadcasts that I do, most of them like at the high school level around here in Central Florida, I, I'm alone. I'm just talking to myself for, for you know two, three hours, however long the broadcast goes for. And I was really grateful that you were uh, there to help out and sort of ease the burden because the, the first of our two days there was a doubleheader. So it was about four hours of basketball we needed to cover, and it was a lot. Yeah, I mean, any opportunity for me to relieve you? I know, I, can, I, I mean, I can't really imagine being on air for four straight hours. I mean, it's definitely an art form and a skill to be able to entertain an audience for that long and also to provide um, valuable content, which you sure deliver on, that's yeah. for sure. But uh, interestingly, you played basketball for a while, what was the experience like trying to describe what is happening to someone who can't see it? Because we were on the radio. Because you, you can see it with your eyes. You kind of had to be the eyes of the listener. You know, how, how do you, did you sort of take that idea and run with it? Well, one thing I did is I just I tried to look back to my previous basketball knowledge um, for anybody who will eventually listen to this. Um, I, most of my basketball experience came in middle school. I played for my, my school's basketball team, but I also played on an AAU travel team where I, I played in different tournaments around the state. And so what I did is I extrapolated the knowledge that I learned from that era, um, and that included different um, defensive or offensive schemes. Basically what I did is I, I referenced that knowledge, and then I tried to channel almost like an author's ability to kind of um, explain in detail what was going on from some for somebody who doesn't necessarily understand the X's and O's 100% and completely in the, the most basic and elementary form that I could. Yeah, and you, you did a fantastic job, and I, I really appreciated you, you coming in and helping me. So anytime, you know, you, uh, <laughs> you want to come on down, and I know basketball season is over, and, and I know you're, you're not really a big baseball guy. That's the next thing up. Um, but, I enjoy uh, baseball. Um, I mean, I... I actually feel like that was one of the first few things that bonded us together was playing on a, a t-ball team That's together. That's true. That is so. true. But there's a lot more that goes into baseball than, than uh, playing t-ball at, uh, at five years old. Most but, uh. definitely. I mean, I, I enjoy baseball, but I know that that's more of your forte in terms of experience. But whether mm -hmm. it's basketball or soccer, I definitely feel like I can be your guy for that. So. All right, well, let's, let's move on and talk about some soccer. Champions League, biggest thing going on right now in the world of soccer. Uh, round of 16, leg one, just wrapped up today. As a matter of fact, we are recording this on February 25th, 2021. Uh, so what I wanted to do is go through all the first round games of the round of 16 and just sort of talk about them, because I know I didn't watch all of them because they all happened at the same time. I don't think you watched all of them, but I think we have enough knowledge of every game to sort of give an opinion. So we start with Liverpool and RB Leipzig and a bit hard done on Leipzig and all the German teams in this tournament because of German travel restrictions due to COVID. None of them played their games in their home stadium. All of the games were played in nearby Hungary in empty arenas. So Liverpool, this is really their only horse, right? They're, they're way back of the uh, of the Premier League race. They just lost to Everton this past week for the first time in over a decade. Yay, because I'm an <laughs> Everton fan. But um, really, the only way that they have of getting into Europe for next season is through the Champions League. So 
they they came out of the gates very fast. They started both halves very well, scored a goal each side of halftime. It's Salah and Mane. It's who you expect to score for Liverpool, right? Yeah, and I mean, at this point in the game, basically to add to what you were saying, at the end of the day, it's really going to come down. Their ability to win trophies is, at the end of the day, going to come down to their ability to win the Champions League. And, I mean, it seems like at it seems like the, the team Liverpool, they're, they're starting to peak at the right time. I mean... At the end of the day, at the beginning of the Champions League, you have the group stage where it's a, a double round robin where you have three other teams in a group and you play them at a home and away leg scenario um, two times. But now that we're in the knockout stage, uh, to add to what you're saying, Michael, I mean, that Liverpool matchup is certainly an interesting one. RB Leipzig, definitely not out of it yet, but it would definitely take a heroic performance against an already very consistent and partially dominant Liverpool team. And Liverpool, second leg, going to be at home in front of their uh, home fans at Anfield. Well, we might, there might be fans, there might not, but we're still not sure. But uh, in the, I'd, the cozy confines of Anfield. I'd like Anfield. to think that, I mean, even Anfield without fans, I, I mean, it's hard for me to say this because, I, I mean, I'm sure playing in a game with a lot of fans will certainly add to the atmosphere, but I just, I think that the history and the tradition of Anfield will certainly motivate the Liverpool players nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, my big thing for, for Leipzig is I want to see Tyler Adams more. Obviously, we are American, so I want to see American players do well. Uh, Leipzig, in their big like, upset run to the semifinals last year, and um, it, it seems like almost a short time ago because the Champions League, the uh, group, uh, bracket stage rather, the Champions League last year was played at the end of summer, when it's usually done by spring because COVID canceled the, ori- the original playoffs. So it just seems like we're right back into it uh, less than six months later. Tyler Adams played a big part in that uh, as an outside back, and I hope he can play well in the second game. All right, Barcelona and Paris Saint-Germain. This was the big shocker of round number one. PSG beat Barcelona 4-1. to one. For those who didn't watch, I mean, it was pretty much the Kylian Mbappe show, no? Yeah, three goals for Mbappe, Premier League hat-trick. I have written on my notes here, is he the next world superstar? He's only 22 years old, and he out-dueled Messi, who I know we're going to get into Messi specifically later in this show. We have some notes about him, but uh, let's talk about Mbappe really quick. World Cup champion already with France, soon to be Champions League champion. Who knows, Paris are, are one of the favorites. Soon to be, maybe. We'll see. I mean, we do have a lot of Champions League matchups still to go, but, I mean, based on what I've seen and based on what Mbappe has proven at such a young age, I mean, there's definitely so much potential for him to eventually ascend to that elite status. But the problem with assigning him that is I feel like for such a young player, it can be rather nerve-wracking if so many people put so much pressure on you right off the bat. But, I mean, he is a trained professional. I mean, he's been in these types of situations before, and I'm actually really interested to see what will happen beyond this Champions League season with Mbappe. I mean, he his childhood favorite club is Real Madrid, and, I mean, Real Madrid, they even despite the pandemic and teams having lower funds to spend, I'm sure Real Madrid will definitely make a run for him. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I think it's only a matter of time before he heads to uh, – not that Paris is not a, a big club in Europe, but a club with a recent pedigree of Champions League wins, maybe a Dortmund, a Real Madrid, a Barcelona, someone of that nature. Uh, I, I think there's it's only a matter of time before he heads there. So the PSG dominant Mbappe, three goals, Barcelona, they're out, or do they have any chance of the second leg? 
I mean, this matchup, this second leg matchup, although it's relatively different in comparison to the matchup that I'm about to reference, this matchup seems all too familiar um, in comparison to just a few years ago when Barcelona found themselves in a very similar situation. I, th- I believe it was they were down 5-1, to one, no? And the Champions League knockout stage against, guess who? Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so it's not out of the woods yet. I remember watching a couple of years ago that second leg and my jaw just going further and further towards the floor. I thought there's no way this is going to happen, but uh, they, they came back. So it's, it's definitely not over. Messi, the only Barcelona goal on a penalty kick. The penalty kick that, that was given was very soft, in my opinion. Shouldn't have been a penalty. And um, I am a very low-level soccer referee here locally in Central Florida, so I, I can give a little bit of opinions on, on soccer refereeing, and I have a little bit more of those later in my notes. Uh, third game, Dortmund against Sevilla. Dortmund won 3-2. to two. Best game of the round, in my opinion, from a neutral perspective. It was so fun to watch these guys go back and forth. I didn't get a chance to watch the game personally. I mean, do you have any reflections or any any key takeaways from well, that game to well, share? Well, it was, it was very end-to-end. Um, Sevilla, right off the bat, they scored under 10 minutes. Um, Dortmund, back at them in less than seven minutes after that. And it, they just never stopped going at each other. Uh, but the big thing I want to I wanna mention here is the other big wonder kid who has been linked to the European giants, and that's Erling Holland. Yes, yes. I mean, it seems at this point that Holland is being now, he's now being linked to at least 10 different clubs moving forward into the summer transfer window. I mean, it, I have absolutely no, no idea where he'll end up or if, I mean, it would be nice for him to stay at Dortmund for another year, but you can't really expect that out of him. Yeah, as as a, I'm not a, a Dortmund fan. They are my favorite German team, but I'm I don't follow them religiously. But um, as as someone who supports them, I'd love to see them keep him. But as is almost tradition now, if if Dortmund has a really good superstar player, unless his name is Marco Royce, he is scooped up and quickly shuffled off to a, a bigger team. Mostly that's uh, Bayern Munich. Yes. Another player on Dortmund that I'm really interested to see what happens with this situation is the Jaden Sancho ongoing situation. And then also Claudio Reyna. Yes. The, the U.S. striker who scored a couple of goals this season as well. Or is it, I believe his name is actually um, Giovanni, right? Yeah, Giovanni Reyna. Claudio, oh, Claudio's his dad. His father. Right. The national U.S. men's national, national team. team player. Yeah. I mean, I think it's honestly. Now that we're speaking on this, um, if we could just segue slightly into, I mean, one point of interest that I think is definitely noteworthy is the fact that we're starting to see an increasing trend in terms of different youth academy players in the United States moving over towards Europe. I mean, we saw that with Arena, with uh, Borussia Dortmund, and um, to add to that, I mean, we have players like Weston McKinney, who started out in the FC Dallas MLS Academy out in Texas, and now he's on Juventus out in out in Italy. So yeah, and then um, Brendan Aronson as well, who's just moved from Philadelphia Union to RB Salzburg, with a future move probably to Leipzig to join compatriot Tyler Adams. You have Pulisic at Chelsea, who got some playing time in their game uh, on Tuesday. Uh, you love to see it all around. Yeah. You love to see homegrown American players out in Europe. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a huge champion of doing anything I can to promote the MLS and its expansion moving forward. I'm, I'm really especially excited because I mean, in 2021 here, we're 
and coming up in March, we're about to introduce the next MLS team from a city that I'm very close to, Austin, Texas, with the introduction of Austin FC to the MLS. Yeah, you lived in Austin for a couple of years. You went to the University of Texas at Austin. So you kind of have, we're, we're skipping around here a little bit. We'll get back to the Champions League, but Mel brought this up. So um, you have basically witnessed this sort of soccer revolution firsthand in Austin, Texas, right? Or is this something that was kind of out of the blue? I think it definitely mirrors a general theme and a general trend living in Austin. I mean, one one trend that you're starting to see, you're starting to see a lot of West Coast um, net migration from states like California out to Texas. It's actually funny. I mean, when I first moved out to Austin, I heard of this place called In-N-Out Burger that initially started out on the West Coast. And I'm thinking, oh, it's out in Austin. That's a little weird. But um, to more specifically answer your question, um, there's a lot of um, net migration from all different places to Austin. Um, I really enjoy living there um, just because it was really cool to see um, the different like the differing influences um, influence the overall growth of the city, but it makes sense. Um, there are a lot of young professionals in Austin. There are a lot of people who are very ravenous. Um, I would assume soccer fans. I mean, the season tickets for Austin FC, I believe, sold out in minutes as soon as they were released quite some time ago. But I mean, I'm really excited for the city. Um, Matthew McConaughey, the well-known uh, former University of Texas grad, is now a co-owner of Austin FC. So that's another exciting aspect to it to see what kind of impact he'll have on the mm -hmm. franchise as well. Yeah, and so the the whole business surrounding Austin FC is interesting from a business point of view because Austin FC was originally supposed to be the Columbus crew because Austin Precourt, who used to own the crew, wanted to move that franchise, which is an MLS original franchise all the way back from the 90s, wanted to move them to Austin to create Austin FC, and the fans in Austin, uh, excuse me, in Columbus, created this whole Save the Crew movement, and they wanted to, to keep the crew in Columbus. And eventually, uh, a local ownership group bought out Precourt, kept the crew in Columbus. They're now building a new soccer-specific stadium for the crew. Um, that's I don't think that's this year. I think that's going to be next year in 2022. But that was the really the first time that I can remember since I've been closely following MLS that the the will of the people was, was heard, basically, because all sports at the major league level are run as corporations, as businesses, and if the ownership group wants to do something, they usually get their way, but not this time. And there was a huge sort of groundswell from all over American soccer fans and even fans around the world to keep the crew in Columbus, and they got it done. But getting back to Austin FC, pre-quarter's back. He's got a new ownership group, which includes, of course, uh, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and uh, he's now in Austin, Texas. And uh, I don't think we're going to discuss the their lineup today. I think we'll save that for a uh, for an episode where we do an MLS preview. But uh, I'm, I'm excited for the, for that city, and I'm excited to, to, to hopefully either see them come here and play a game or maybe even us traveling out to Austin to play a game, to Most see a definitely. game. I mean, it's definitely really interesting, and it's fascinating to see the league continue to grow, especially given the, the league's unique structure and especially the draft structure and the way that they draft players. I mean, I know, Michael, you can – add to that a little bit if you'd like as well with the whole 
you have designated players that you can designate each year. And then in addition to that, certain players are up for grabs during an expansion draft, you know? Yeah, so every time there's a, a new team that comes into the league, every team gets to protect a certain number of players, and every other player in the league can be just swiped off that team and taken to the expansion team. Um, but MLS is basically run like the other big American leagues, NFL, NHL, NBA, so where the main way you replenish your player base is through the college draft. And I think that is changing ever so slightly because you see now more clubs have academies, specifically FC Dallas and, and Philadelphia, we've already mentioned. But um, more clubs are forming those academies and getting those players up in a sort of European style of like an air quotes that, you know, up, f you know, start them at, you know, U10 and eventually, you know, in 15 years, they'll play for the first team. Um, and I think that is eventually the way to go in terms of player development. But right now, the MLS is very sort of Americanized in its in its structure. Yeah, I mean, to add to what you were saying, one team that I think we should touch upon, even if it's just for a few minutes, is, I mean, unfortunately, the rival to Orlando City being Inter-Miami, David Beckham, he is one of the co-owners of Inter-Miami. And one thing that I think will be fascinating to watch over the next couple years is to see how more European players interact with the possibility of going down to Miami. Um, one point of interest that I found to be fascinating, so Messi recently purchased a multi-million dollar apartment in Miami, and I'm I'm wondering, does that is he trying to signal to us where his mind may be just a few years from now? I mean, to to add to that, um, it was really cool being a Juventus fan because now um, in the state of Florida, I do have the opportunity to see players that I grew up watching, such as Blaise Matuidi, um, who played for the likes of PSG and Juventus, and of course, um, good old Gonzalo Higuain, the Argentine striker as well. Um, I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping to definitely see them play at least once before they retire. Yeah, and, and I don't think we can put much stock in Messi buying an apartment in Orlando. I'm uh, sorry, in uh, Miami. Lots of people do that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice, warm destination to go for, for the summer. I don't think, in my personal opinion, that Messi will ever leave Europe. So let's get back to the Champions League after we've gone on an MLS tangent. We are at the game that you want to talk about. <laughs> You mentioned you're a Juventus fan, and your white and black uh, players are down 2-1 to one after the first leg to Porto, and it was kind of self-destruction, if I can put it that way, for, for Juve. They, they kind of were their own worst enemy in that game. Juventus traditionally, I mean, I've religiously watched most games over the past, I would say, decade. I've, I would like to think that I've been a fan since my early high school years, I mean, one tr one prevailing trend that I've started to see, we've we've had, unfortunately, a lot of management switches over the past couple of years. We, um, maybe five, six years ago, we had the likes of Conte, who is now um, the Inter Milan coach. He's a former Juventus player. And then after that, we saw the likes of Max Allegri, who led Juventus to the Champions League final. And now we have... Um, Andrea Pirlo, who's actually another former Juventus player, um, and the likes of Sarri, the manager last year. And so unfortunately, I think what Juventus's biggest problem is at the moment is 
just adapting to a style long term and just fitting into a system long term because a lot of these coaches have such varying playing styles and varying tactics it can be tricky and sometimes unfortunately it leads to sloppy play Mm -hmm. and Juventus really have underperformed in the past I'd say four or five years specifically in the Champions League yes they've been dominant in Italy and that's changed this year because both Milan clubs are apparently are running away with it Uh, but in the in the Champions League, they've underperformed considering the amount of talent they had and even adding Cristiano Ronaldo, who's one of the, the two big players right now, along with Messi, added him a couple of years ago, still cannot break through even to the semifinals of the Champions League. I mean, to recap, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with everything you're saying, unfortunately. I mean, I think the best way to move forward as a team is to acknowledge where the various um, weaknesses and flaws are in order to improve um, not only as a team, but as an organization as well. I mean, I definitely agree with the move to bring Ronaldo in from a financial perspective to build more brand awareness. But in terms of actual play, there are definitely some key issues that need to be addressed. And uh, with with regard to the second leg coming up, um, Juve, they're down two to one moving into the second leg. But on the other hand, I am very confident in a team like Juventus to pull themselves out of a situation like this. I mean, they've been in this situation before. Um, for those who don't follow the Champions League very closely, they found themselves in a similar situation going 2-0 down after the first leg against Atletico Madrid. Um, they lost 2-0 in that first leg at the new Atletico Madrid stadium, the Wanda Metropolitano, and many people counted Juventus out, but at the end of the day, when you do have a player like Ronaldo and when you do have so much talent on one roster, when everything clicks, it's very beautiful to watch. But at the end of the day, sometimes it can also be pretty horrific to watch as well. And it really just kind of depends on what kind of day Juve has that mm-hmm. day and if they wake up flat-footed or not. So. And they certainly came out flat-footed against Porto in both halves. They gave up a goal in 90 seconds on both sides of the break, goal in the first two minutes, and then goal right out of halftime, which really salted the game away. They got a Chiesa goal right at the end, close to stoppage time, which, which gives them a chance. It gives them an away goal. So all they need to do is win by one, at home, and they're through to the next round. So it's not over by any stretch of the imagination. And unfortunately, one thing that I was sad to see, um, did you end up watching the Juventus game, or did you just catch the highlights? I caught the highlights mostly. I tuned into the very end of it, because uh, I think at that point I was watching Dortmund Sevilla. One of the one of the true leaders of the team, in addition to, of course, CR7 being Ronaldo, is Giorgio Chiellini, um, the Italian and a national team player who's historically been really critical to the team's success. Unfortunately, he left the game early with an injury, and I hope that that doesn't break the mentality of the team. I'm sure Ronaldo will do everything he can to get them ready mm-hmm. for the next leg, but that's definitely a morale loss, at least from that perspective. But I do believe in... Hopefully it doesn't turn out to be a round of 16 second leg like last year when Juventus was unfortunately eliminated to OL. So I want to do a bit of comparison here to between Juventus and my team, which is Manchester United, who obviously aren't in the Champions League. They're in the Europa League. They, they won their uh, Europa League round of 16 game today. This is on the Thursday that we're recording this, so they're into the round of eight. But that's not the point of this topic. So I want to compare the two very quickly because they've gotten very similar progression tracks. 
in my opinion, and here's why. Both of their managers were very decorated former players that, I, I don't know about you, but I think the United fan base really wanted Ole Gunnar Solskjaer fired last year in their sort of bleak run of form towards the end of last year. But he's turned it around. United are in second place in the Premier League and look one of the fav- like one of the favorites to win the Europa League. So I think that Juventus may be on a similar track to United, just a little bit behind them. I think if they stick with Pirlo as a manager and allow him to sort of lead the team and find his style managerially, I think that will benefit them long term. And I also don't think they should have done that to Pirlo, throwing him in as manager literally right after he retired <laughs> as a player. Uh, so I, I I think that was a tough spot to be in, you know. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Juventus, pretty similar similarly to other teams like Chelsea, it, it's been a bit of a revolving door for coaches. But I hope that the ownership of Juventus, they're I hope that they're patient and I hope that they give Pirlo the benefit of the doubt because I I mean I 100% agree with you. I think it's all about the long term project. And although they're definitely itchy they're definitely itching to win a Champions League final given Ronaldo's aging status, even though I personally think he ages like wine. But, I mean, Ronaldo will retire at some point or he'll leave and possibly go to the likes of PSG. So this season, I think, will be very telling long-term for Juventus. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of other Champions League results that came in on Tuesday that I want to quickly run through. We don't have to spend much time on these. Uh, the game I decided to watch of the three on offer was Atletico Madrid and Chelsea, and I made the wrong choice. <laughs> this <laughs> game was a v- very uninteresting game. Chelsea dominated for the most of it. Most most of it was just spent playing the ball around the back I in mean, the Atletico half. They got a goal from Giroud on 67 minutes. It was actually a very nice goal. Bicycle kick, top of the box, into the corner. Almost ruled out for offsides. They originally ruled it out. They went back, VAR confirmed he was on sides, the goal stood, and that's how they win 1-0. Atletico just looked terrible. Chelsea 5-0 in shots on target, 65% possession, and I don't think Atletico's outside backs crossed the, the halfway point of the field once in the entire game. It was a very, very lazy effort from Atletico, so I think Chelsea definitely has the upper hand heading into round into leg two on home turf. I mean, one asterisk by Chelsea that I find to be so interesting and rather unusual. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we saw the firing of Chelsea legend Frank Lampard, and now they've brought in Thomas Tuchel, who is the former PSG manager, and they've been on a tear. And I mean, in this situation, I do think that if you're Atletico, when you do have the likes of Luis Suarez up at striker, I do think anything is possible. But I agree with you in the sense that, I mean, Chelsea, they're definitely in the driver's seat, but they can't give up any reckless and unusual mistakes. Yeah, a team that definitely is in the driver's seat, probably the favorite to win the whole tournament, Bayern Munich. They dispatched uh, Lazio 4-1, all four of their goals coming in the first half. They cruised to the second half. Lazio got a late goal. Lewandowski, he does what he wants. He scores all the time, under 10 minutes. He puts the ball in the back of the net. And so this... Champions League season, and I don't want to talk about the the Munich game itself because it was rather uninteresting, but I want to talk about who the favorites are because it's seemingly shaping up like there are about four teams that could take this down. You've got Munich, you've got PSG, 
you've got Bayern, or you've got uh, Liverpool, and you've got Man City, I wouldn't bet on any of those teams because it could be any of them. Anything can happen. I mean, we've seen some crazy stuff here in the Champions League, but at this point, if we were to pick teams today, I mean, I would definitely go with Bayern Munich. To add to what you're saying, they they did win that first leg convincingly, four to one. I really think it's just going to be about can Bayern peak at the right time. And I mean, it's honestly been, to be honest, kind of a steamrolling machine, whether in Bundesliga or in Champions League. I mean, I believe they won the treble last year, and they're just they're locked and loaded for another season of winning more trophies. All right, uh, let's talk about the other uninteresting game from uh, Tuesday. Man City 2-0 over Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, again, this game, like the, uh, like the Liverpool-Leipzig game, was played in Hungary because Germany was not allowed to have international teams come into the country. So, but again, City dominant. They're favorites for the Premier League title. At the point of recording, they are 10 points clear at the top of the Premier League over Manchester United. They are one of the favorites for the Champions League. They have just been on an absolute tear. 26 games unbeaten for Manchester City. Their last loss, last November, to Tottenham. And, I mean, every single year, um, regardless of where they are in the Premier League, that's another that's another topic for sure. I mean, they're always going to be a contender just simply because of the immense amount of talent that they have. Um, historically, at least over the past few years, um, with their manager being Pep Guardiola, the historic um, Barcelona player and eventually manager who went on to help Barcelona win, I think it was two Champions League titles. I mean, when you have all of these factors coming together, you would think on paper that Man City would blow through everyone, but that that definitely has not been the case um, with some early UEFA Champions League exits for Man City. We'll see if they can overcome that moving mm-hmm. forward. And it could be the very last ride of uh, Sergio Aguero as he is set to leave Man City at the end of this year. Now, the interesting game from Tuesday. Real Madrid on the road at Atalanta. The darlings of the Champions League last year who made that magnificent run through the bracket stage. They lost 1-0 to Real Madrid thanks to a Remo Fueler red card. 17th minute, straight red for denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity that basically handed the game to Real Madrid. And in my opinion, I I, I referenced that I'm a referee, so not that I'm a qualified referee, but it was a good call. Freder was the last defender back. It was outside the box, which the the new regulations introduced a couple of years ago state that you cannot get a penalty and a red card for denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity on the same play. So, but it was outside the box. He clearly chopped him down. No one else back there but the goalkeeper it was a good call, and it basically ruined any chance Atalanta had of winning that game. Because going into it, they were honestly the favorites. Yeah, I mean, Real Madrid historically, I mean, they have more champ. I, I believe they have more champ UEFA Champions League trophies than any other team, right? I can't say that off the top of my head, but I, I think you're right. It's between them and Bayern Munich. Something along those lines. I mean, I'm looking at these specific statistics here for the first leg. Two shots for Atalanta as opposed to 19 for Real Madrid. 69% possession for Real Madrid in contrast to 31% possession for Atalanta. 
I mean, on paper, it looks like Real Madrid are going to clean up with this one and just be clinical and move on to the next round, but it is only a 1-0 lead, so anything is possible, right? And it is Atalanta. You know they love to run. They love to get in behind. They love to score goals. Most goals scored in Serie A last year, but also near the top in goals conceded. So a lot of the games were very back and forth. But in my opinion, Madrid didn't do enough. They did not do enough. Up a man for 80% of the game, they only managed to score one goal on a brilliant shot by Mendy in the 87th minute. But you only win 1-0. You have 19 shots against 10 men. Vincunius looked terrible in front of goal, and he's <laughs> he's supposed to be their main goal threat. I should add more context <laughs> to what you're saying. So with the 19 shots on goal, the or the or with the total shots being 19 for that match, only four shots on target, so a rather low on-target percentage yeah. to speak to what you're adding here. There were a couple of chances, I'll, I'm going to harp on this, for Vincunius inside the the box or at the top of the six-yard box, and he just skies them or puts them wide. And it, it, this should have been 4 or 5 nil. So Atalanta will be going into the second leg thinking, we have got a chance here. It's certainly possible given Atalanta's firepower. I mean, to add to what you're saying, I mean, like you said, they were the top scorers in Serie A last year. I think the X-factor matchup will be how does Real Madrid's defense contain that offense moving into the second leg? Mm-hmm. So no, no silly red cards in less than 20 minutes in, hopefully. Unless you're Sergio Ramos, of course, <laughs> and just keep with tradition and just keep doing his thing, I guess. I just I feel like there's always been this conversation about whether he's an elite defender. I mean, I'd like to think that he is, even though he has such a high number of red cards, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, it is. All right, so that's your your Champions League preview review round of 16 halfway through. All right, so let's move on and talk a little bit more MLS. We talked about Austin FC and how excited Mel is being a former Austinite uh, for Austin FC, but we have a couple of MLS notes to get through. I, and I guess we are both Orlando City fans, being from the Central Florida area. Um, I was an Orlando City season ticket holder for 10 years? No, for for 8 years, from 2011 to 2019. I mean, they are my favorite team in world soccer because they're my local club. I guess not technically anymore, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, Um, definitely. They signed a couple of people this week um, to sort of offset the loss of Daryl DK, who MLS Rookie of the Year. Off to England he goes to Barnsley. It should be a short-term loan, but Barnsley does have the opportunity to buy at the end of the loan, at the end of the season, and he did score his first goal for Barnsley this weekend. So, I mean, definitely hats off to him. You love to see players grow and be successful not only at their um, – so was this his initial first club, DK? Yeah, because we got DK through the Super Draft at the beginning of last year, like oh, 12 months from basically today. We got him through the Super Draft. MLS Rookie of the Year, most goals by a rookie in MLS, dominating in the air in the box. And I mean, so we, we, we see him for one season, and then he's gone. <laughs> unfortunately – I mean, I have to agree. I think he's probably going to be gone forever, and you wish him well, and you wish a player – I mean, we we definitely need to thank him for his service to the club, but, I mean, maybe there's that small percentage chance he comes back. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. But other, but uh, preparing for that loss, we have signed two forward players. First up, the 
living legend, Alexandre Pato, the Brazilian. He's not quite a living legend, but we're, we'll go with that. <laughs> For those in the soccer community, he was definitely traditionally known as, I mean, definitely being one of the better players in the top five European leagues. From my mm -hmm. recollection, of, you said Brazilian national team player at one point, and I mean, I believe he also played for um, AC Milan. Yeah, here's his, his CV, AC Milan, Chelsea, Corinthians, and Sao Paulo in Brazil, and as well as the Brazilian national team. 398 appearances, so he'll reach 400 with Orlando City this season, 160 goals, 48 assists. The big question concerning Pato is his health. He has been out for long stretches of his career with leg injuries. So if, if he can stay healthy, he gives Orlando a very dangerous extra threat going forward in, in addition to, to Chris Mueller and, and Nani. But he's got to stay healthy. So that's the big X factor and why I'm not as hot on this signing as I probably should be. I mean, I assume he'll probably start. I mean, maybe it could be one of those situations where if his health is a problem, maybe bring him in second half in like the 60th minute to come on and get that game-winning goal or that game-deciding goal. But I'm, I'll be definitely really fascinated to see how Orlando City integrates him into the lineup. Mm -hmm. The other signing for Orlando City, this one I'm a little bit more excited about because Sylvester Vanderwater, a Dutch player, recently played for Heracles in the... Dutch Endeavorize. Uh, he's only 24 years old, winger slash forward, uh, 43 goals and 125 appearances, and he was literally, Orlando City confirmed this signing as I was typing these notes <laughs> on Tuesday night. So, so this is a very fresh signing. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm very excited. Sylvester Vanderwater definitely wanted to come to Orlando City for a long time. He even sat out some games last year to try and force a move, which didn't happen, but now he's here. And I'm excited to see what he can do. Yeah, I mean, you have so many... You have such a great mix of players. I, re, I mean, you have the likes of Mueller, who's a relatively newer, younger player, new blood and new life. And then, like you said, I mean, you have veteran leadership with the likes of Nani, who's played all over Europe, and now Pato. And, I mean, I'm really excited for Orlando City. During the, during the height of the pandemic, we saw that, um, at least from TV, we saw that... Um, tournament in Orlando where Orlando almost came through and won surprisingly mm -hmm. so that was a, a pleasant surprise for everybody and for us who's been sort of long-suffering Orlando City fans longing for the glory days of, of, of USL and, and lower divisions where we basically won everything uh, and, and we had not made the playoffs at all since since coming into the MLS until this until this past season and man we could talk for a whole couple of hours on the play on Orlando <laughs> City's playoff run in 2020, but we're not going to get into that. But, um, yeah, so I, I'm very excited for Orlando City season. They, they've, they kept one of the best coaches in league history in Oscar Pereja. They kept the majority of their roster that got to the second round of the playoffs. So let's see if they can improve on it this year. If I'm Orlando City, I'm definitely wanting to sign their coach to a long-term deal. I, I really do think that he he has been the heart of the success tactically for the team. Mm -hmm. And and he was the man that really kick-started the whole uh, FC Dallas Academy revolution. And, and that has sort of spread out throughout the league. And now most teams have youth academies. And FC Dallas was one of the first to really implement it in terms of getting youth players into the first team. All right, so we talked about Austin FC earlier in the show. Let's talk about the other announced MLS expansion teams coming in over the next couple of years. We get Charlotte FC 
2022. And then two teams in 2023, St. Louis City and Sacramento Republic. Only one of those three teams is being promoted, with big air quotes, because that's not a thing in the U.S., uh, from a lower division. That's Sacramento Republic. And they deserved this years ago. And speaking from personal experience with Orlando City being a lower league club with a, with a really big uh, homegrown following and lots of support here in Central Florida, I see the same things happening in Sacramento. And they have been, they have been abandoned to wallow in the third division. I guess now it's the second division for five years too long. They should have been up here the year after Orlando came into the league. But now they're going to get in, not next year, but the year after that. So a, a long-suffering Californian fan base finally gets its due. In addition to the Sacramento Republic coming up in 2022, we're going to see Charlotte FC. I'm especially excited for this addition to the MLS, especially given the soccer-oriented culture that already exists, especially at the collegiate level with ACC schools with the likes of Wake Forest and whatnot. So I think that the fan base will really appreciate bringing a team to Charlotte. And that area has, well, Charlotte FC is going to be a new franchise. They have great soccer pedigree in terms of minor league play. The Carolina Railhawks, and then they became North Carolina SC, are still a franchise that are around in USL. They have one of the best women's teams in the world in the North Carolina Courage, with uh, star talent out there. It's Lynn Williams, I think, is their star player. But, uh, yeah, there's a very big hotbed in the Carolinas for Charlotte FC. But the big thing that I wanted to bring up about Charlotte, and to a lesser extent, St. Louis City, who comes in in 2023 with Sacramento, is... And I don't know how to correctly put this without sounding offensive... But the MLS, and especially with their new teams, and even their old teams, has a branding issue. So we have the, the teams that have come in recently. And I'm just, I don't have this written down. I'm going all off the top of my head. We got New York City FC, Atlanta United, Orlando City SC, Inter-Miami CF, which is Club de Football. And recently... We rebranded, this is just a month ago that they announced this, Montreal Impact is now just Montreal CF. Yeah, I mean, in, in addition to what you were saying, I mean, Inter-Miami, and I'm super happy for the city of Miami. I think it's cool to see another MLS team being launched in the city of Miami, but from a legal perspective, which I find to be really interesting, since you brought up the, the branding issue, um, I believe Inter-Miami are now caught up in a legal battle with Internazionale and Serie A over naming rights issues. And so over the next couple of years, I'm curious to see how that issue is sorted out from a branding perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I think a lot of that is sword waving because... I don't know if they. I, I I know. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. But I don't think they've trademarked Inter I N T R. Um, I know it stands for Internazionale, but I don't think you can trademark that word in itself as well. Their badges are nowhere near similar. They don't use the same colors. They don't use the same language. Inter Miami is Spanish. Internazionale Milan is Italian. I, I don't think Milan has a leg to stand on here. I 100% agree with you and. 
in an ideal world, I think it would be nice if both teams can coexist, especially given the fact that they play on two continents, two different leagues. And we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But um, I mean, it, in general, it has been nice to see a lot of MLS expansion. I'm curious to see when they will when the expansion will cease. Yeah. So the next three teams. So after 2023, they'll have 28 teams in MLS. That brings them close to the other major sports leagues, the MLB, the NHL, NFL. I, do they stop at 30 or 32? Or I really think it's going to come down to what happens with net migration and certain key indicators that would lead to a city in a market saying we would actually be able to support a team. I, I mean, I would really try, if I'm somebody who's trying to convince a specific team or a franchise to come to my city, I mean, I would want to see a lot of compelling data to support that fact. Um, I can't speak on those numbers specifically, but that's what I would do, at least in terms of figuring out, okay, which cities are going to be emerging cities in terms of whether it's population or economic growth, um, all kinds of different factors. I mean, venues, that's been another thing with Minnesota United. Um, they don't have a new they don't have their own stadium yeah they do they, they, do they opened the Allianz stadium this past this year. past year okay well yeah. that's really good to see um it's really cool to see the likes of Orlando City and Exploria Stadium having their own stadium Inter Miami I don't believe they do they do have yeah their... they they built that was the, one of the things now coming into the league is you have to have your own stadium the last wave of teams that that didn't apply to was NYCFC and Atlanta United and okay. Orlando City at the time because they played back in the Citrus Bowl in those days, but they had already had a plan to build what became Exploria Stadium. But um, Atlanta was always going to play in the same stadium as the Falcons because of they share an ownership group. And NYCFC, while they would love to have their own soccer-specific stadium, where are you going to put it? in New York City, and I, I know from a fact from club statements they want to keep the club in the city and not move them to New Jersey or, or another suburb. At that point, you're approaching New York Red Bulls territory out mm-hmm. in, New, in New Jersey, yeah, just outside New of the stadium, yeah. or out of the city, I excuse me. Mm-hmm. So the, the other thing I wanted to mention about branding, and you took this in a very interesting discussion, but I, I wanted to sort of guide back to the names of the teams themselves. It seems every new ownership group is playing it very safe and very, I don't know, sort of joining the homalgamation of soccer team names around the world. But I don't like that. I like LA Galaxy, Columbus Crew, Chicago Fire, New York, uh, New England Revolution. I like that. I think it which is what makes the MLS unique. I think we need more of it. But unfortunately, everybody else sees it differently. And one of my main issues with Charlotte specifically is when they were about to release their name. And I'm going to try and, and find this. So I'm just going to try and keep t- talking while I find this image. Um... Charlotte FC, when they were about to release their, their team name, they put out an image on social media with, I think, about eight different team name possibilities. And this wasn't a fan vote. It wasn't a pick your favorite, and that'll be the team name. It was just, we've already picked a team name, but we're going to say, here are things it could have been, 
and not actually what it is. And it's problematic because you're not providing the you're not truly engaging with the fan base directly in that respect. I mean, I do agree. I think they probably could have done it a little bit better, but I'm curious to see how the fan base will respond during the inaugural season well, here it, in 2022. It, it wasn't very good. Like, so here's the list of names that they put up for the everybody to see even after they had already decided on Charlotte FC as a name. So mm-hmm. Charlotte FC, Charlotte Crown, Charlotte Fortune, Charlotte Monarchs, Charlotte Athletic, Charlotte Town, Carolina Gliders, and All Carolina. Some of those are terrible. Like Charlotte Carolina Gliders and All Carolina, no. But I would have loved to see Charlotte Town. Charlotte Town, I feel like that's kind of a sleeper pick. If we actually, I mean, if we had the power to go back and mm-hmm. change it, I mean, Charlotte Town, it definitely seems like a rather unique name that doesn't necessarily fit into those um, molds that you discussed previously. Mm-hmm. And also, my favorite of the bunch is Charlotte Monarchs because it goes back to that sort of Americanized naming convention of city mascot, not just city football club or soccer club. And compounding that is what Montreal just did. They took one of the best brands in MLS in the Montreal Impact and just made it Montreal Football Club. <laughs> like, come on, guys. You, you, if you want to rebrand, fine. But keep the name, keep your identity. It, it's just it's going all in the wrong direction for my liking. I, I would love to see brands sort of try and be more adventurous Unfortunately, that's not happening, and we're just gonna be we're gonna be stuck with City Football Club for from now on. It looks like. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm I'm gonna do everything I can to try and promote the game of soccer here in the United States. It's been such a integral part of my life. But I mean, you make very good points, and it would be nice to insert a higher level of creativity, at least with the team names and mm-hmm. branding and everything along those lines. Yeah. So, if anybody from Sacramento Republic is listening to this podcast. Do not go this route. Keep your name. Keep your badge. It is incredible. It's one of my favorite uh, soccer branding things, not just in America, but in the country. Sacramento Republic has great branding. I hope they keep it. All right. One more soccer topic before we move on. Let's talk about Leo Messi, one of the two pillars of greatness that everybody in the soccer community looks up to right now, him and Ronaldo. So Messi's contract with Barcelona was recently leaked to the press, to Spanish newspaper El Mundo, or The World. Uh, So he was signed in 2017 to this contract, worth up to 555 million euros, that's 673 million US dollars over four years. So variables, that's, you know, goal scored, bonuses, playing bonuses, promotional bonuses, that could reach $167 million per season. And what I find to be so interesting, at least on a general level before we start digging into the specifics of the contract itself, is I remember it was such a big deal when Patrick Mahomes signed at the time his record-breaking deal contract, and now with the leakage of Lionel Messi's contract, it makes... Patrick Mahomes' contract looked rather small in nature, and it's just mm-hmm. it's amazing that um, with the likes of Lionel Messi, I mean, there are so many. I mean, I believe there was a 79 million euro loyalty bonus for every consecutive year in which Messi decides he wants to return. He gets 79 million pounds in addition to his, I think, 
120 something million salary salary something mm. along those lines i'm pulling up the numbers loyalty now. bonus 69 million 69, a year okay um yeah that it <laughs> it's just astronomical but i mean i'm just from a from a former player's perspective and from a fan's perspective i'm just really thankful that we as a soccer community had the opportunity to experience watching Lionel Messi um for me growing up and watching him on TV in those El Clasico matchups for most of my life. And in addition, it's really fascinating to see the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, both of those all-time greats playing together in the same generation. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a treat. So we can't talk about Messi and his contract without mentioning the fact that it expires in a couple of months. So he is up in June of this year. His contract expires it's been a Is rather there, turbulent yeah. time, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, Messi, he's won two Champions Leagues with Barcelona, I believe. Most recently in 2015 against, I hate to say it, Juventus. Mm-hmm. But, and that was the last time Juventus made the final. Yeah, that's true. That was the last time they made the final. But, I mean, if there's any team who I'd like to see Juventus go out to, even though I hate to say it. I mean, it would be kind of cool to see Lionel Messi, maybe in his last year, get that coveted Champions League trophy. Mm -hmm. So, with that being said, is there anybody in the world that could lure Messi away from his precious Barcelona? Because if you know if he stays at Barcelona, he's... Even though he's in his mid-30s, he is getting a similar contract to this. He's going to play at Barcelona until he's 40. That I'm sure that is a contract that they're negotiating right now. During the most previous transfer window, he's being heavily linked with the likes of Manchester City just because of that pre-existing relationship that he had being a player for Pep Guardiola. But at this point in time, if I had to pick a club that Messi would be most interested in attending, I would think it would definitely be PSG for multiple for multiple reasons. The first reason being he would be able to link up with Neymar Jr., who he won his most recent Champions League with. That front three with Lionel Messi, Luis Suarez, and Neymar was essentially unstoppable and probably one of the best front threes in soccer history. But I think that um, the team chemistry that would persist and flow nicely would be something that Messi is interested in. In addition to that, um, PSG, they do have the finances and they do have the funds to be able to afford a player like Messi. And so that's what, those are two specific reasons why I think PSG could be a landing spot at the end of the day. Who knows? And the other contract rumor that I heard concerning Messi was that he would go to Manchester, it was a four-year contract with the Manchester City football group, two years at Man City, Two years at NYCFC was something I heard rumored. Now, is that very likely? No. I don't think it's likely at all. I don't think Messi's going to never... I don't think Messi's going to not play in Europe in his career. Uh, But it's interesting. It's an interesting thought piece. We could potentially see Messi play live in two years, even at age 38. I'm glad you say this because I feel like we don't disagree on a lot of things. But I do think if I, if I had to say, I mean, I will probably be wrong and we can reference this moment for the rest of history and time as it unfolds. But I really do think at the end of the season, he'll probably end up at 
a team like PSG, maybe on a two-year deal, maybe a three-year deal. And then I do think that it is very possible for him to work his way over to a larger market in the United States and tap into it in the way that um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic did. And that's why previously in this podcast, I said maybe Miami would be a great landing spot for him, given his Spanish language background. But I'm excited to see how it turns out. And I mean... For both of our sake, I hope that I'm right so we can go watch him play down that's, in Miami. That's true. Like, hey, you know, let's let's take the four-hour trip to go see Messi. I'd do it, man. But it's nice to dream. It's it's fun to hope, and that's all we can ask. But, yeah, it's definitely been really interesting following Messi growing up. I feel very privileged to have been able to just watch both him and Ronaldo play growing up. I mean, we historically we saw the likes – or. I guess not us because we weren't really alive, but um, you have players like Pele who were the traditional and the um, Brazilian Ronaldo types of players who initially stood out as the elites. And now I'm curious to see where all of these players will be ranked in accordance with Messi and Ronaldo once these two eventually retire. Yeah, I mean, well, going back to when, when we were kids first getting into soccer and we, you know, huddle around the TV and watch the World Cup or the Champions League or whatever it was. My favorite player back then was Ronaldinho. Yes, Ronaldinho playing for Barcelona, AC Milan, um, Brazil. Brazil in the uh, 2002 World Cup was really, really the tournament that made me fall in love with the game was the 2002 World Cup uh, in, in Korea and Japan. But we are, we are ranging a bit far afield here. Let's, let's uh, get off of soccer and get into something else. That I'm something that I am not as well versed in, but something I'm interested in all the same, which is the UFC. For the longest time, I did not like combat sports. I I didn't care. I didn't see the point. If anything, I watched Olympic style amateur point boxing. That and that was about it. But I'd say yeah, 2009, summer of 2019, I was at a convention in Atlanta. And a couple of us went out for dinner after one of the nights of the convention. And we went to a, a sports bar. And there was a UFC pay-per-view on at that sports bar. And one of the people I was with at the time was... He's a karate black belt. He's a karate teacher. And he was able to sort of explain to me sort of the theory about what's going on and, and why it's important and what to look for. And then I became kind of invested, and I don't think I've missed an event since maybe one or two. So I, I've become a pretty big fan over the last two years, and I know you're – are you a recent UFC I, fan as well? My My relationship with the UFC is slightly different. I mean, I've always – I mean, growing up traditionally as a kid, I mean, I played sports – such as soccer and basketball, but I always had such a respect for people who participated in um, MMA sports, whether it be Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whether it be collegiate traditional wrestling or simply your, um, your strikers, your boxers. And what I found to be so interesting about the UFC, um, obviously we, so with the COVID-19 panic or pandemic, we saw lots of sports at least temporarily shut down. And there was one sport who, I would say, managed to stay afloat during this time, and it was the only sport on being the ultimate fighting championship, the UFC. And it's just been really interesting to see Dana White, who is the 
current acting president, I believe, of UFC navigate his way through the pandemic and still find a way to put on events. And that's when I really became closer to the sport. And I'm really, I mean, I guess um, in times of um, in times of struggle and hardship, I always believe in trying to find the silver lining of even um, the situations such as um, COVID-19. I mean, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to have um, watched a lot of these UFC events because if the pandemic hadn't happened, I mean, maybe I would have never um, fallen mm-hmm. in love with that sport. So, so a recent conversion like myself. But so we want to get into some, some UFC topics because – it is an exciting time for the world leader in mixed martial arts. But before we get that, I want to echo, yeah, it was basically the only thing on through a couple of months of last year, late uh, late spring, early summer, until we saw you know bubbles happen for the NBA and MLS and European soccer found a way to get back going and finish their season. But the UFC was it. And it was really cool to kind of see how they went about doing it. Um I remember earlier on in the pandemic, everybody was kind of speculating as to how is the UFC going to be able to put on these events in a safe way, but also in a way where you're going to be able to bring in fighters from around the world. I mean, the UFC, the, it's known for having not only American fighters, but especially a lot of Brazilian fighters. And you're starting to see a lot of fighters from Asia and Africa as well. And what they ended up doing is they ended up creating it their own compound, I guess you could say, on Yas Island in Abu Dhabi. And mm-hmm. so that's been really fascinating to watch some of the, the bigger UFC pay-per-view events to showcase Dana White's international fighters. And it's it's been very odd. I'd say more than any other sport, it's been more odd to watch sporting events without crowds for the UFC as opposed to basically anything else. Yeah, and I think what I find to be especially fascinating is I think it has varying and differing effects depending on the fighter. For example, a household name that even people outside of the UFC know of, Conor McGregor. I always kind of felt like Conor McGregor, he's the kind of guy who really thrives off of the crowd. He really thrives off of that intense crowd environment. And then there are fighters who in some cases may even benefit from the lack of crowd noise because you can start you you're able to hear your coaches in the corner trying to trying to coach you and offer assistance and so it's it's truly offered a new dimension to the sport which I'm curious to see when they'll go back to having large events but um we de- we're certainly living in a unique time with mm-hmm. regard to the UFC and the, one of the last I think it was the last pay-per-view as of right now which was the last Conor McGregor one, had a very small number of fans uh, in attendance in Abu Dhabi. I think it was like 20% capacity. Something like that, Um, yes. And something cool about uh, Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi is that's where the uh, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix is, or Formula One. That's where the the Yaz Marina Circuit is. Oh, okay. I didn't didn't know about that. We don't have to get into this now, but I am a big... um, auto racing fan, so like NASCAR yeah. and, and Formula One and other types of endurance racing as well, but that's not really something we share a passion for, so it's not something I don't think we'll talk about a lot. Well, let's talk about um, the most recent UFC event. It wasn't a pay-per-view event, but it was a UFC fight night between Blades and Lewis. Derek Lewis versus Curtis Blades, the number two 
heavyweight ranked contender going against Derek Lewis being number four. And, I mean, that was just an insane fight from start to finish. It was a rather unexpected ending. I believe uh, Curtis Blades, he was a minus 350 favorite to win the fight. Yeah, he was. And uh, if he would have won that, probably next in line for a title shot. But, as many do, he met the ruthless fists of uh, of uh, Derek Lewis. And he he tried to shoot for a takedown. Ray, uh, Blades, obviously the better wrestler of the two, tried to shoot for a takedown midway through the second round, got caught with an uppercut, and that was it. I mean, Derek Lewis, he's definitely, when you think of technical fighters, he's definitely not the first person that comes to mind. But one thing I think that he brings to the table is his veteran experience. Michael, I mean, before we got on air earlier today, we were talking about how he has the most knockouts in UFC history being 12. Mm-hmm. And Tied with uh, Vitor Belfort, who is obviously a fighter that is, was uh, around before our time and from my the sport. And from my understanding of the fight, I think Lewis did a really good job of kind of picking his shots, being patient, almost in a way kind of shelling up and absorbing some of the shots that Blades would offer. And then at the right time, I mean, he made that uppercut count, and it led to the demise of Blades in that situation. Yeah, and there are a couple of quotes from Derek Lewis after the fight that I want to get to. Lewis said, quote, he felt dead out there during the fight. I mean, so maybe he wasn't like at the races maybe in the first round. And he also said that the, the, the knockout was the point of the fight that he was waiting for. That, you know, as speaks to your point of him being patient and absorbing a little bit and then waiting for that, for that moment. But I think it's impressive that even on, not on his best day, he was able to come out and get an upset. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the, the sport of ultimate... The, I think that's what makes the UFC so fascinating. I mean you can see an underdog come in and sometimes, especially with the heavyweights, the light heavyweights, even the welterweights, some of these guys, they have such immense knockout power that anything is possible and sometimes all it takes is, just like in soccer, one goal can change anything, one strike or a submission. Anything Mm -hmm. can happen. Speaking of submissions, I want to talk about something else that happened on the Fight Night card. It was one of the um, main card fights between Alexi Olenek and Chris Dawkins and Alexi Olenek is one of the longest serving members of the UFC. He's been a professional fighter since the late 90s. He's 43 years old. He's regarded as one of the best submission artists in the game, but the last couple of years have not been kind to Olenek. Uh, and, and again, proved it, lost in two minutes to the up-and-comer Chris Dawkins. And, and is it time for Alexi Olenek to retire, and I think it might be. Well, I think it—do you have his ranking on hand? He was—he's uh, in the top 10. I think he's 10th. He was 10th. Okay. I, my answer to this particular situation, I think it depends on a lot of factors. I think it depends on—I think what he should do is just kind of— now that the fight's over, I mean, unfor- I mean, he lost, so I think what he should do is just kind of take some time for himself, heal up a little bit, and then maybe a few weeks, a few months later, then he can reevaluate the, his current contract situation with the UFC. But, yeah, when you take a string of losses like that, um, unfortunately, you have so many different factors working against you, whether it's the age factor, whether it's the fatigue factor, and, I mean, Dana White, I mean, it, the the UFC is the the top fighting championship, and he's gonna want to keep people who win on. And unfortunately, he's gonna have to make some tough decisions. And we'll see if Olenek makes the cut or not. Yeah, and we saw earlier this year, 
or maybe it was late last year, it was either in January or December, that uh, the UFC cut, I think, 40 fighters from the roster, including some fan favorites like Yoel Romero, who most recently had a title shot against Israel Alessandra and lost. I mean, one of my personal favorites, I mean, I've only been a UFC fan for probably, I guess, about a year, a little less than a year. One fighter that I really enjoyed watching in particular, his name, he's actually a Dutch fighter. I'm sure you've heard of him. His name is Alistair Overeem in the heavyweight division as well. He recently took a loss as well. He was trying to make perhaps his last title fight run. I'm curious to see how Dana feels about Alistair Overeem. I hope that Dana will give him one more chance at least. Yeah, he is a, he's in a similar position to Olenek in that he has been in the game a long time since the early 2000s. He was making one last push at the title, like Olenek, and then he basically got interrupted in a big way uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I want to see if, if he still has a chance maybe for one more title shot or if that was, if that was it and he's done now. But uh, all things to be decided in the, in the coming months. One fighter that I'm super excited to watch in the coming months, I'm not sure when it'll be. We, as UFC fans, we had the opportunity to watch the likes of Kamzat Shimaev, the Swedish fighter who I think he I believe he fought two or three times in the span of a month, just mm-hmm. quickly rising in the ranks. And I think he's probably due to fight I mean, I would think maybe Leon Edwards, something along those they, lines. They tried to get that fight done late last year. The the problem is with Chimaev, and this is obviously, you know, hearsay, but nobody wants to fight him. I mean he's he, he's, he's just, hot. He's been on a wave of destruction. He took Two fights in in the span of seven days. Uh, the first time the UFC went to Fight Island back in July, and won both of those. Then he came back to the U.S. and got a first round knockout as well. Yeah, I mean, it seems clear that the the fight with Leon Edwards isn't happening. But I'm just thinking, it's tough to be in Leon Edwards' position because I think I believe he's sitting at number three in the rankings and. It's a risky fight for him to take on such a rising star because if if Chimaev ends up beating a top five opponent, the question is, where do you put Chimaev at that point? Do you put him in the top 10? Do you put him in the top 15? Do you do you give him the ranking of the player of the person that he beats? I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what Dana White does with Chimaev moving forward into 2021. Yeah, I. And I, I feel for Kamzat Chimaev, I really do, because he's done nothing wrong. In fact, he has been one of the talking points of the UFC over the past year. He's been one of their rising stars, and now he can't get a fight. He had three fights in the span of a month, and now it's been almost five months. Well, from Dana White's perspective, it's really interesting because I feel like there are differing ways in which you can approach a quickly rising fighter. You can give him the really big fight, maybe after a few fights, or... What you can do is you can develop the fighter and play more of a long-term game, which is what I thought he was trying to do with the likes of Sean O'Malley. Maybe not give him such very difficult competition right off the bat, but maybe nurture him a little bit and give him some, I guess, medium-level mm-hmm. competition and then slowly work, it, work his way up. Well, but yeah, Well, the, the sugar show is something we need to talk about probably in a different episode because... He rose, again, so fast and then got derailed just as fast. Yeah, I mean, that's the name of the game with the UFC. You have the rising stars, and 
unfortunately, if you end up on the wrong end of a punch, it can be lights out for not only yourself, but your UFC career as well in certain respects. So it's a very tough business, but I have so much respect and admiration for all of the people who put them their bodies on the line for a sport that I find to be so fascinating. I mean, it's what I find to be fascinating about the UFC is you have different people. For example, you have Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists and they go up maybe against somebody who's a striker and you think, okay, what the heck is going to happen here? I mean, so many different things could happen depending on the stylistic matchup. And so I just, I find it so interesting. I'd always love to talk to a UFC champion and say, oh, what goes in, what goes on in your head when you decide who you want to fight next? Do you look more at um, the stylistic matchup or do you try and go after somebody who has a lot of hype behind them? I mean, it's such a fascinating sport, not only from the sport perspective itself, but from a business perspective. And it's honestly a little bit of like the entertainment industry as well now. Mm-hmm. So let's move from what has passed to what is going to happen in the UFC. We've got a huge card coming up here in a couple of weeks, March 6th. That's not this weekend, but the next weekend as we record this. Three championship bouts, four title holders on the card, headlined by currently my favorite fighter active right now, Israel Adesanya, as he tries for dual championship status. He goes for the light heavyweight crown against Jan Blachowicz. I'm slightly surprised he decided to make the jump and up to the next weight class, but, I mean, as we all UFC fans saw, I mean, he pretty much tore Paulo Costa apart, and I'm thinking, okay, Costa definitely has the strength and the power matchup on Adesanya, but, I mean, he's a kickboxing, he's a kickboxing legend. He really knows the specific areas of the leg to target. And one thing that I think makes Adesanya especially unique, in addition to the fact that he's completely undefeated, is the fact that he has reach on almost everybody, given his height. Mm -hmm. I actually think it was the right move for Adesanya in two ways. First way, who is left for him at middleweight? He's beaten Robert Whitaker already. He's beaten Paulo Costa already. Jared Cannonier, who seemingly was next in line, lost in what was essentially a semifinal uh, eliminator for him. He certainly has cleaned out the division, and I I certainly don't blame him for moving up to move on to to bigger and better challenges. I just... The problem is Adesanya, although he's undefeated, I have seen him fight a few times, and there are times when he he doesn't seem to take damage too well, and so I'm just... I'm slight... If there's one thing I am a little concerned with in terms of Adesanya moving up a division is handling a shot from Jan Blahovic. I mean, it could be lights out for him. So and we'll Blahovic definitely has the power to take him down. The most recent UFC champion, Jan Blahovic, beat Dominic Reyes uh, back... Was that in November? I think it was in November. Something like that. It was a rather convincing defeat. I really thought Dominic Reyes would put up more of a fight, but Blahovic, I mean, he came in there with a game plan. He didn't let the shenanigans get to him with the pre-fight drama and he just he did his thing yeah and and he's got tremendous power he's a great boxer one of the best boxers along with um Piotr Jan who we'll talk about in a minute but um the other reason I see Adesanya take this fight is he's looking past Blahovic and he's looking for a potential super fight with the light heavyweight legend 
John Jones. And now, and I have a quote here from Dana White. Dana White has said on record in an interview with the BBC that that is the best fight to make in the sport right now, Adesanya versus Jones. A couple of things have to happen. First, Adesanya has to beat Blahovich. We don't know if that's going to happen. Second, Jones has already vacated light heavyweight and gone up to heavyweight where he has still yet to make an appearance at heavyweight. I mean, maybe what John Jones is doing right now is he's kind of just sitting back and he's kind of waiting to see how all of the moving parts and pieces sort themselves out. I mean, if I were in his perspective, if I were in his shoes, I would wait to see what happens with the Blahovich fight and then also keep his eye on the likes of Francis Ngannou and whoever wins that heavyweight bout with mm-hmm. Miocic coming up here in the next month or two. I think that's March. Yeah, end of March is Miocic Ngannou for the, the, light, for the uh, heavyweight title. And I want to touch on that in a second, but I want to get back to 259 because it's an insane, insane card. So we've also, on that card, got Amanda Nunes, the best female fighter Ever. I don't think... And it doesn't I'm, even come I don't close. Think, I don't think I'm going to ruffle any feathers by saying that. Current two-division champion has defended both of those multiple times. She puts her featherweight championship on the line against Megan Anderson, who is an Australian fighter. I honestly do not know much about Megan Anderson. She was an Invicta championship. She's on a two-fight win streak. But Nunez, 11 fights unbeaten has not lost for six years. And I mean, I think at that point, for her, she has nothing left to fight for other than her legacy and just the, I mean, her legacy is pretty much cemented. I mean, someone like that, I mean, she must just love the the sport of fighting and it's really cool and it's it's nice to see that she still wants to put herself back out there when she really doesn't have to at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are coming to the end of Amanda Nunez's career and I'm just... Like you said earlier about Messi and Ronaldo, it is a privilege for us to be able to watch someone like that in the prime of their career or even in the later prime of their sort of transitioning towards the end of their career to be so dominant at something for so long. I mean, all the credit to Nunes. And in addition to that, I mean, imagine being a UFC fan in the 2000s watching George St. Pierre. I mean, he's the other guy. I mean, I feel like I can't really... speak on watching him because I just didn't. I try to watch all the ESPN plus GSP rerun fights, but it would be really interesting to see if he would come back and fight a retired Khabib in the next year or two. That's another one that's just brewing slowly. I think that one's more fantasy and, and, and conjecture than some of the ones we've been talking about in the last couple of minutes that are more feasible. So I think Nunez... Maybe headed towards the back end of her career. I don't think... Megan Anderson has good hands. Decent boxer. Don't think she troubles uh, Nunez for that championship. And the third and final championship bout on this card is another newly minted champion, Piotr Jan, who is, if I can scroll down in my notes, the bantamweight champion. He takes on number one contender, Aljamain Sterling, and this is straight striker versus grappler. Jan, one of the best boxers in the UFC at, you know, pure, the sweet science of boxing style. He will mess you up. Sterling, fantastic wrestler, collegiate wrestler, and also jujitsu background as well. He'll try to take it to the mat, and I think this goes one of two ways. Either Sterling takes it to the mat and he wins, or Jan keeps it standing and he wins. Yeah, I mean, I do think that 
that fight is kind of a question mark to me. I mean, we'll see if Jan can master the takedown defense and prevent Sterling from creating a certain level of havoc there in that fight. So that one, very straightforward uh, to me. So, man, let's talk about heavyweight because it's very interesting. I think everything was set up for Curtis Blades to beat Derek Lewis and then take on the winner of Stipe Miocic, Fritz, and Francis Ngannou. However, he did not win. So, Miocic versus Ngannou, March 27th, they have their rematch for the heavyweight championship. Who steps in and fights the winner? Is it Derek Lewis? I think he does get there on merit. I think definitely Derek Lewis deserves a chance at some point in his career. I'm not sure when he'll get it, but I mean, if I remember correctly, he's won four straight fights, and he's done. I mean, he's won in a very convincing manner in most of his fights, and it would be really interesting to see how he matches up depending on who wins that UFC belt between Miocic and Ngannou. I think Ngannou. I mean, if we're if we're going to talk about the upcoming pay per view event, I. Miocic won the first one, but I I think Ngannou he I think he he's at a point in his career where he's he has the experience and he has just immense athleticism to the point where I think that he can he can go head to head with anybody. I mean, did you watch that fight with um, Ngannou and Jairzinho Rosenstruck, the I other did. rising star? I, I mean, did. that was a Wow. I mean, to see Rosenstrike get knocked out like that, I mean, that's crazy stuff. And Rosenstrike has a chance this weekend, in a couple of days, he takes on uh, up-and-comer Cyril Gaon, who's currently ranked number seven. But uh, I, I just looked at the rankings while we were talking for heavyweights, and Derek Lewis has been bumped to number two okay. after his win. Um, and what about Blades? I assume maybe they probably traded Yes, spots. Blades went down. Um well, before we move away from Blades, sorry to yeah, go ahead. cut you go off. Ahead. I just want to say, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I just, I really, I hope that Blades can come back because I think it was really cool to kind of see him rise and I really like his walkout song, which is the <laughs> Mortal Kombat theme song. And so that's just another reason why I'm I'm hoping to see him come back. Yeah, I, Blades not that old. I, he He's still got fight in him and I, I don't think that I do actually think that Curtis Blades might get a title shot down the line it just won't be uh, this year so Gon and Rosenstrike this weekend if Rosenstrike wins I think an interesting matchup is a rematch between or not a rematch but a matchup between Rosenstrike and Blades yeah, as an yeah. essential title eliminator and the winner of that potentially getting a title shot maybe in 2021 yeah, or 2022 I mean, rather. There's so many, the the heavyweight division, I mean, especially in the top five, top 10, it's truly stacked. I think there's so many creative matchups that Dana White could make depending on how things go over the next month or two. So with both us being UFC fans, I'm definitely excited. And I'm, ho- I'm hoping that we can get together for at least one of these events. And I'm hoping, exciting. I'm hoping, uh, Next week for 259, we can get together and watch yeah, it because that yeah. would be incredible. And we'll talk about that more off air, but I'm for sure excited. Mm-hmm. So one more thing I want to mention about the heavyweight division is Stipe Miocic, current champion, um, won two out of three against um, DC, Daniel Cormier. Cormier retired last year. I would have loved to see him go out on top, but unfortunately, 
He, he, he didn't get it done against Miocic. Miocic is 38. If he retains against Ngannou, beats him for the second time, which I think is very plausible, does he straight up retire? Does he vacate the belt? Or does he push it into his 40s to try and defend this thing? Because looking at people coming up, I mean, you've got Lewis, you've got uh, Cyril Gaon, who's a very interesting young prospect. I think it'll come down to a variety of factors. I mean, he is when he's not training for the UFC, I believe he is a firefighter as well. He's a first responder. And I think it'll just have to do with the... It'll come down to a lot of factors. Basically, whether um, his family is supportive of it, how is his body feeling, how much damage is he going to take in his upcoming fight. I think we'll have to wait and see what happens. But, I mean, if I were in his situation, if he wins one or two more, I would... I mean, I'd walk away on top. That's mm-hmm. what I would do. Yeah, and it's and but again, John Jones is lurking somewhere in the shadows, some middle ground between light heavyweight and heavyweight, waiting to see what happens. Because if Blahovich wins against Adesanya, does Jones commit to heavyweight instead of coming back down to take on Adesanya maybe in the fall? There are so many different permutations we could talk I, about this all night. I feel like. He'll probably stick around for definitely some time. I mean, they're basically to add to what you're saying. I mean, there are, you're right. There are so many different, especially money-making fights available for him. I guess it just depends if he's, how much is he willing to potentially risk in terms of his overall legacy? If he wants to walk away on top and possibly have those working sharks in the background saying, oh, you never fought me. So that's a, that has to say something about your legacy or if he'll step up and do it. But I'm excited to see what he decides and all the respect to him. I mean, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. Oh, you're still CBMH. I had turned to John Jones Oh, John real Jones. Quick. Okay, So I, I, I was see. sort of referencing his sort of – he's sort of in the no-man's land between heavyweight yes, and light yes. heavyweight waiting to see what happens. I think if Adesanya beats Blahovich, Jones comes back to light heavyweight to fight Adesanya. If Blahovich wins, I think he goes up to heavyweight to try and chase the heavyweight title. But we shall see. We, we, we don't know anything until the next you know, month or so. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with both light heavyweight and heavyweights. So we've been going for a while here. I think it might be time to call it an episode. And yeah, uh, yeah. so quick before we, we sign off here, quick reflections on we, – we've been talking about doing this podcast for almost a year. <laughs> I mean, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm glad that we could finally make it happen. I mean, I find it interesting because, I mean – we talked about soccer and then we talked about UFC being on two opposite ends of the sports spectrum, mm-hmm. but it's, it's nice to be able to um, talk about such a wide variety of sports and it's really nice to be able to kind of dig deep and really kind of go into the analysis of some of these situations, whether it's the contract breakdowns or whether it's our simply our champions league outlook moving forward into the future. And it's been, it's been an honor and a pleasure and I'm so, so thankful to be on the air with you again. So. All right. Well, th- this is not going to be a weekly thing. I think this is going to be whenever we want to get together and record, this will be an outlet for us. So don't expect regular uploads, but this is definitely not going to be the last episode Certainly of this not. show. Uh, so thank you very much for listening if you've stuck around uh, this long. And uh, I'm Michael Torello. He's Mel Stack, and we will see you next time.